You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at the picture. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No one. Everyone. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week and survived that first real work week back to the office of the year. I barely did, but hey, it's a three-day weekend for me, so time to adjust. It's also raining like crazy, so if you hear any atmospheric sound in the background, that is the rare appearance of the California, or Southern California, rainstorm. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Women Talking. It feels... Weird to refer to this film in terms of, like, good or bad. The first word that kind of comes to my mind when reflecting back on seeing this movie is more important. It's a very important topic that this film deals with. It's based on um, sexual assault accusations reported within the Amish community. I think there's a short docuseries about it on Peacock, I believe, um, which I saw before seeing this. They don't actually say it's the Amish, it's the Amish. I'm sure that's to avoid like lawsuits or something. But the film is a fictionalized series of events involving women dealing with the fallout of a group of men getting arrested based on sexual abuse. The depictions of the heavy stuff in the film are an intense, honest depiction of kind of dealing with rape and domestic abuse. So if you've got any issues with that, I'd say stare clear. It's a very, it, like, it's important. <laughs> it's an important exploration into trauma and the gender politics, even though it's obviously at the extreme end of it. It's it's handled very well. And yeah, the acting was magnificent. I'm still emotionally exhausted over what I saw. Damn, damn, that was a powerful movie. And now onto this week's topic. This week, the life of the actor known as the Great Stoneface, whose comedic antics would make him one of the most outstanding members of Hollywood history. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Joseph Frank Keaton was born on the road into a vaudeville family in Pequa, Kansas on October 4th, 1895, the sixth generation to carry the name Joseph Keaton. His father, Joseph Halley, owned a traveling show that featured Harry Houdini called the Mohawk Indian Medicine Company or the Keaton Houdini Medicine Show Company, which featured stage performances and also sold patent medicine on the side. 
According to legend, Joseph acquired the nickname Buster at the age of 18 months after falling down a long flight of stairs without injury. A family friend remarked, gee whiz, he's a regular Buster, or something to that effect depending on the retelling. After this, Buster's father began to use the nickname to refer to his son. Buster would tell his name's origin story many times throughout his life, but in his retelling he was six months old and Harry Houdini gave him the nickname, though the family did not know Houdini until later. But, you know, makes for a better story. At the age of three... Keaton began performing with his parents in The Three Keatons, first appearing on stage in 1899 in Wilmington, Delaware. His mother played the saxophone while Joe and Buster performed center stage. The act entailed the young performer teasing and disobeying his father, and the elder Keaton would respond by literally chucking his son against the scenery, into the orchestra pit, or even into the audience. A suitcase handle was sewn into Buster's clothing to aid with the constant chucking. The act evolved as Buster learned to do pratfalls, all the while never really getting injured or even bruised. This style of comedy, of course, led to accusations of child abuse, which, you know, fair, he's tossing his kid everywhere, and a would-be arrest occurred a time or two, but Buster was always able to show the would-be arresting officers that he had no bruises or broken bones, and he would often also demonstrate his gymnastic prowess. Buster would eventually be billed as the human mop or the little boy who can't be damaged, and the overall act was referred to as the roughest act that was ever in the history of the stage. When Buster was about three, he got his right index finger caught in the clothes ringer, and the first digit of that finger had to be amputated. It wasn't a big part of his life compared to, like, what happened to Harold Lloyd. I just thought it was interesting that two of the biggest comedians of the silent era both had, like, major hand injuries. I thought that was weird. Not weird. Coincidence. When the elder Joseph's drinking began to threaten the act, timing was a key element of Buster not getting injured after all, and drunk people aren't exactly known for their dexterity. But by the time Buster was 21, when his father's alcoholism threatened the integrity of the act, Buster and his mother Myra left for New York, where Buster's career quickly evolved from vaudeville to film. In February of 1917, 22-year-old Buster met silent film icon Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle at Talmadge Studios in New York City, where Arbuckle's studio Comique was shooting. He didn't know it, but his life was about to change forever, as it was there he'd meet his first wife and the producer who would help make him into a star. During this first meeting with Arbuckle, Buster was asked to jump into a scene and start acting. Such a natural was he in this first film, 1917's The Butcher Boy, that he was offered a contract on the spot. He and Arbuckle had incredible chemistry, and that would leap off the screen. Growing up, Buster had only served one day of formal education and was ultimately taught how to read and write by his mother, two skills the actor would admit later happened later in his life compared to others. As an adult, Buster would also be lauded for his mathematical mind. He apparently had a good head for math and was interested in how things worked. Knowing this, it comes as no surprise that at the end of his first day at Talmadge Studios, he asked to borrow one of the cameras so he could kind of mess with it and see how it worked. He took the camera back to his hotel room where he dismantled it and reassembled it by the next morning. It didn't take long for Buster to become Arbuckle's right-hand man, his second director and head of his gag department, with Buster appearing in 14 of Arbuckle's shorts between 1917 and 1920. 
It was also during this time that Buster's primarily stoic face, which he'd been honing since his days on the vaudeville circuit, developed to the point where it would become one of Buster's signatures. Crazy kooky antics and stunts performed by a man with a stone face. And this was by design. In Buster's opinion, if actors were laughing about the situation they were going through during a scene, then the audience would not. So, the straighter his face, the bigger the laughs from the audience. Not long after Buster had begun working with Arbuckle, Arbuckle and his business partner and Buster's future brother-in-law, Joseph Skank, decided to move Comique, Arbuckle and Skank's production company, to the West Coast so they might take advantage of the nearly year-round California sunshine. I miss it very much. It's been raining like all freaking week. Anyway, tagging along with them was Natalie Talmadge, the middle sister of Norma and Constance Talmadge, both of whom had become movie stars in their own right. Natalie had also dabbled in acting, but she wasn't the biggest fan of it at this point in her life and was working as Arbuckle's assistant instead. On the trip across the country, Natalie and Buster fell in love, but this romance and Buster's film career was forced to a pause when he was drafted into World War I. Buster served in the U.S. Army's 40th Infantry for seven months, during which time he suffered an ear infection that was so bad he lost partial hearing in one ear. Upon his return from the war, Buster and Arbuckle picked up where they dropped off, starting with the duo appearing in The Garage in 1920. The film is notable for its usage of intricate mechanical props and a subtle implementation of humor that further advanced the comedic film as a whole. It was from this film that others began to take notice of Buster Keaton. In 1920, Buster made his starring debut in The Saphead, a comedic remake of the Douglas Fairbanks film The Lamb from 1915, which was based on the play The New Henrietta. Fairbanks had recommended Buster personally. With a body of well-performing work behind him, Skank gave Buster his own production unit, named Buster Keaton Productions, of course, which was located in the heart of Hollywood on Eleanor Avenue and Lillian Way. While the original buildings that made up Buster Keaton Productions are now gone, the location is now home to a film production supplies company, but an image of Buster on an exterior wall and a plaque on the sidewalk alerts unsuspecting pedestrians of the magic that was produced on those grounds a century ago. Skank gave Buster full control over the films he made there, so long as they made money, of course. Working for Buster Keaton meant keeping up with a grueling six-day work week, with each day starting around 6 a.m. While Buster had a series of very talented gag men working for him, the best ideas always seemed to come from the vaudevillian-trained actor. When Buster broke his foot performing one such gag, it gave him time to focus on the second love in his life, Natalie. After being on again, off again, will they, won't they for three-ish years, the duo married on May 31st, 1921. Problems in the marriage began before the ink had even dried on the marriage license. We already know that Buster was a bit of a workaholic and Natalie had a bit of a spending problem. With his foot not even healed all the way, Buster experimented with multiple exposure in the film The Playhouse from 1921, which saw the actor playing every single role. Other than George Melier's experiments 20 years prior with similar tricks, Buster was the only name in the game with the time, money, and innovative spirit to take these kinds of risks. By this point, Arbuckle had transitioned into making feature-length films for Paramount and was doing quite well for himself until the actor was accused of assaulting and causing the death of an actress in September 1921. If you recall, I did an episode on this back in March 2021 if you want more info on that. 
Buster was supposed to have attended this party, but didn't go as it had been in San Francisco, and Buster wanted to keep up his hectic production schedule. Buster did offer to be a character witness for his friend when the case went to trial, but was advised against it by Arbuckle's lawyer. The ensuing scandal and trials destroyed the actor's reputation and career, despite being found innocent, and the fading of Arbuckle's star incongruently meant the rise of his former protégés. Secretly, Buster would ensure that a percentage of his film's profits from this time would go to help out the man who dealt him into the picture business. When Buster and Natalie's firstborn son, Joseph VII, was born in June 1922, his sister-in-laws moved in. Likely in response to this upset in his personal life, Buster made 1922's My Wife's Relations, in which he stars as a husband who is bullied incessantly by his assertive wife's father and brothers. Not long after making this film, against Buster's wishes, Natalie had their firstborn son christened as James and called him as such. Buster Keaton transferred into feature films a little bit later than his other silent counterparts, with his first feature-length film being Three Ages, which released in 1923. The film was a spoof of D.W. Griffith's Intolerance and comedically explored the history of love in three different time periods, prehistoric, ancient Rome, and modern day, meaning the 1920s. Buster improv nearly all of his stunts in this film, a habit that would continue for years to come. Seeing a Buster Keaton film meant observing the most insane stunts and antics that rivaled those of Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin. Even though out of Lloyd, Buster, and Chaplin, Buster's box office numbers were far lower. During the railroad water tank scene in 1924's Sherlock Jr., the actor broke his neck when a heavy downpour of water fell on him from the spout of the water tower, but he did not realize what had happened to him until years afterward. Another iconic scene from Steamboat Bill Jr. required Buster to stand still on an exact spot or a whole-ass house would clip him. The gag involved the facade of a two-story, two-ton building falling on top of the actor, with him perfectly threading the opening of a second-story or attic window. Because that stunt required Required precision. They nailed his shoes to the floor, so you'll notice you can't really see his feet. So he runs up to where the shoes were in the where he could obviously see it, and then he knew he was safe there as the house fell onto him. Despite taking those kinds of you know precautions, Buster would later claim that he broke at some point in his life every bone in his body. Transitioning to feature-length motion pictures meant an increase in work, but it also meant an increase in pay for the actor, and Natalie wanted a home that reflected this change in status. Buster, likely as a byproduct from his life on the road, just wanted to live more modestly and had built the couple a quaint cottage to raise their family. As the legend goes, however, Natalie flew into a rage when she saw the house, demanding to know where the servants were supposed to go. So Buster sold that house to an MGM exec and built his wife a 10,000-square-foot Italian villa-style mansion in Beverly Hills instead. If you can't tell, the marriage wasn't going great. Buster, in an attempt no doubt to strengthen their flailing marriage, cast his wife as his romantic lead for 1923's Our Hospitality, but the time together only made things worse. Historically, not a great sign. Shortly after Natalie gave birth to their son Robert in February 1924, she decided she was done having children, that she never wanted to have sex again, which, you know, it's her right, and she banished Buster to another bedroom. For some reason, I'm guessing it had to do with the sake of the kids, Buster and Natalie would remain married for another eight years, and Buster would seek out physical and emotional gratification through a string of lovers. 
Arguably, Buster's most famous film, not only from this era, but in perpetuity, was The General from 1926, in which the actor plays a train conductor in the Confederate South during the Civil War. The film Buster set out to make would be equal parts comedy and historical war epic. The film costs an astounding for the era $750,000, nearly $12.5 million in today money, was shot on location in Oregon, and the scene in which a train speeds across a burning bridge and falls into a river was the most expensive scene captured in silent film history. That's right, Buster Keaton destroyed a whole-ass train for that scene. 1920s Hollywood, very much the, the rule of thumb was have more money than sense. While the film is considered a classic of cinema now and one of the best films ever made, this was hardly the opinion of cinema goers back in 1926. They thought seeing people die on screen was in poor taste and were not prepared for the subtlety of humor that the general portrayed. And I mean, this film is so, other than the fact that it's silent and obviously it looks old, you wouldn't know that it was if you were just looking at the scenes, like just out of context. Like the, the best example I can think of is there's a scene in the film of Buster on top of a moving train carrying out his typical hijinks with other actors and in the background as the train is barreling like down the tracks you see a whole ass recreation of a civil war battle it's not part of the scene at all it's just it's just a background action that he did for this like i said that'd be an impressive thing to see nowadays forget back in 1926 but despite impressive filmmaking techniques, the general proved to be a costly flop for Buster and his production company. In fact, the flopping of the general, followed almost immediately by Steamboat Bill Jr. suffering the same fate, cost Buster the right to completely control his own films. Skank, Buster's brother-in-law and producer, in case you forgot, he was married to Norma Talmadge, had become president of United Artists by this point, and as a result, he had Buster's films being distributed by them starting in 1924. Because of the financial losses of these two films, United Artists, so probably Skank, hired a production manager for Buster's films who would monitor expenses and interfere with costlier story elements if need be. Buster endured this for two films before allowing his contract with his brother-in-law to be sold to MGM as the Hollywood machine became more and more corporate. Going with MGM meant that Buster was no longer responsible for financing his films, but this also meant that he had less control over what he made, and a salary which was negotiated by Skank was zero of the actor's input. Despite warnings from Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin, Buster agreed to the deal. He would later call it the worst business decision of his life, and his film career was never the same. Buster didn't realize the full extent of how creatively stunted he would be during the studio system at this time, but was made all too aware upon arrival. The strict conveyor belt method of filmmaking was in place at this time and was especially strict because all of these studios had just built expensive sound stages and purchased sound equipment to go along with. These early sound films had all had to be bangers for the studios, or they might find themselves in financial ruin. The footloose and fancy-free method of shooting without a script that Buster Keaton had enjoyed in the silent era was now, more or less, a relic. Unlike many of the other silent film stars of the day, Buster was actually eager to make sound pictures. He found the technology fascinating. However... MGM refused his request to do so because they believed film overseas was going to remain more popular silent as there was no language barrier in the silent pictures. A huge attraction in acquiring their first comedic actor in Buster was because his silent film antics were incredibly popular overseas and they wanted to cash in on that and they couldn't do that if he was speaking English. 
Also, sound stages were super expensive to maintain, and MGM in the early days wanted to save them for the more or less sole use of their big budget prestige dramas. MGM also forced Buster to use a stunt double during some of his more dangerous scenes, something the actor had never done in his heyday, but that MGM required because they didn't want him to get horribly maimed. Quote, a stuntman don't get you laughs, Buster later said. The silent picture, The Cameraman from 1928, would be Buster's last arguably great film that he was in control of, more or less. Buster and the film's producer, Lawrence Weingarten, fought incessantly throughout production as Buster struggled to adjust to his reduced role in the filmmaking process. Buster did win a few of those fights, including being allowed to rewrite the script for the film that had already had 22 separate writers working on it. The film was a financial success and led to MGM acquiring and training new writers to construct, quote, perfect comedy, a practice that continued there for decades. Despite this, MGM just didn't really seem to know what to do with Buster, and his performances suffered as a result. While shooting his final silent film, 1929's Spite Marriage, Buster began an affair with actress Dorothy Sebastian. While she was hardly his first mistress, this was the first time Buster openly carried out the affair, and his discretion would not improve. In 1929, Buster appeared in his first sound picture, The Hollywood Review of 1929, which was essentially just a variety show. It didn't really have like a, a, a plot, a string through plot. Buster appeared in the Dance of the Sea segment, as well as in the finale in which the entire cast sings Singing in the Rain. If you managed to do like I did and soldier through Babylon, the finale of this film is dramatized in Babylon. It's when Brad Pitt's character is in the pink rain slicker and he's fighting partaking in the the scene where everybody's singing, singing in the rain. That's that's they're they're alluding to this actual the shooting of this actual scene. And I think they they try like his agent or whoever it was. I can't remember. It was a three hour movie. One's mind tends to wander. Like they told Brad Pitt's character it was it wasn't like a, a weird thing to do or a crappy thing to do for his career because Buster Keaton was there. And I think Jack's or Jack, I think, was the name of the character Brad Pitt played. He just said something snarky about Buster Keaton in the general. I can't remember. Again, three hour movie. Mind wandered. <laughs> Eventually, Buster would be allowed to make his own sound pictures, starting with 1930s Free and Easy, and basically just because silent films fell completely out of vogue by that point. Two things came out of this film that were upsetting for Buster in his career. Firstly, reactions to his voice, which is weird to me because he sounds perfectly normal to me. But for some reason, whatever reason it was, some people didn't like the sound of his voice. He just sounds like a dude. I don't get that one. Secondly, for the first time in his big time career, Buster played a character that didn't get the girl in the end. He felt his superstardom fading away, forcing him into a life of character actor work. This change in the fates would cause an increase in his drinking. No longer a golden boy, Buster began to become a thorn in MGM, specifically Louis B. Mayer's side. The actor with their wild parties on the lot carried out a string of increasingly public, often messy affairs, which included one actress that Buster took home to have sex with, whom he let raid his wife's closet. She was spending $900 per week at this time on clothing alone, so that sucker had to be stacked. When Buster broke up with this actress a little bit later on, she publicly beat the crap out of him, setting off a PR nightmare. For his next three films, Buster was coupled with loudmouth comedian Jimmy Durante, with Buster playing second fiddle to Durante. When the films did better financially than any of his own had ever done, despite having appeared in three successful films, Buster was emotionally distraught. 
His personal life was chaos. His professional star was waning by the minute. And Buster's drinking intensified to a bottle of whiskey per day. For what would end up being his final film for MGM under this contract, ironically titled What? No Beer? The producers of the film hired Buster, a nurse, to essentially babysit the 37-year-old actor and try to if not prevent his drinking, at least slow it down. On the last day of production on this film, Louis B. Mayer himself fired Buster. Not long after this, Natalie filed for divorce, and given her soon-to-be ex-husband's current state of being, she walked away with nearly everything. She also got the house he built for her and full custody of both kids. Once she procured that, she changed their surnames from Keaton to Talmadge. Before the divorce was finalized, and what Buster would later claim was a blackout due to his drinking, Buster would marry the nurse that had taken care of him <laughs> during his last MGM picture. Her name was Mae Scriven, who would later claim that she didn't even know her husband's real first name until after they got married. Unsurprisingly, this marriage only lasted three years, from 1933 to 1936. During this marriage, Buster briefly made a couple of films in Europe, and when he returned to Hollywood in 1934, made two real comedies for a production company called Educational Pictures. Buster designed the gags for these shorts, often recycling old bits from his family's vaudeville act. Now, more or less a middle-aged has-been, Buster's drinking intensified to the point where the actor was forced into a mental hospital to work out his demons. During his hospitalization, he managed to break out of a straitjacket thanks to tricks he learned in his youth from Houdini. Rock Bottom seemed to have finally arrived. Upon his release from the hospital, Buster went home, made himself two cocktails, and then didn't drink again for five years. Seemingly out of pity for the hard times Buster had fallen upon, he was hired for $100 per week to work as a consultant for MGM in their gag department. This was a $2,900 a week reduction in salary from his initial salary at MGM. Buster would formulate gags for the likes of Red Skelton and the Marx Brothers during this time. Buster held daily bridge games on the lot while he was working as a gag man, and during one such game, an MGM rostered dancer by the name of Eleanor Norris showed up. Despite being half his age, the two fell in love, despite the better efforts of their friends to split them up. And on May 29th, 1940, the two wed, and this time, the marriage stuck. During this era, Buster repaired his relationship with his now teenage sons, despite going against their mother's wishes to do so. Buster finally settled into a quiet, stabled, married life and got a 10 two-wheelers deal from Columbia for his trouble. This started in 1939 with Pest from the West and wrapped up two years later with She's Oil Mine in November 1941. After this, Buster would return to his old gig as a gag writer for MGM, occasionally accepting a role here and there, and also occasionally performing on stage. His last starring feature role would be 1946's El Moderno Barba Azul, which was shot and released in Mexico, not making its American debut until released on VHS in the 1980s. Buster embraced work on the small screen as well, including gigs on The Edwin Show, which was so successful it got the actor his own show, Life with Keaton, that aired from 1950 to 1951, and which he restaged and reshot his old vaudeville act and early silent film gags. Cameos in films like Sunset Boulevard, Around the World in 80 Days, and Limelight would also follow, as did more than 70 television appearances, which included commercials. In 1955, James Mason, the current owner of the house he'd shared with Natalie, found five of Buster's old silent films previously thought to be lost. 
Buster's new business partner distributed them all over the world, reinvigorating the popularity of Buster Keaton. To this day, Buster's films are not only enjoyed the world over, but are studied extensively by students of film in all manner of educational focus. And his popularity never faded again. After losing his home in his 1933 divorce, in the late 1950s, Buster was finally able to build a modest home for himself and Eleanor in Woodland Hills, 20 miles outside of Los Angeles. Buster received an honorary Oscar for his contribution to the art of motion pictures in 1959, which kicked off his final decade. Despite considering the idea of retirement, Buster continued working in all manner of projects, some good, many not so good, but he just loved to work. Buster Keaton's last major film performance was in 1966's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, during the production of which the 70-year-old wowed the cast and crew by doing most of his own stunts. Seven months after attending his first film festival, the 1965 Cannes Film Festival, to promote a short film called Film, which had been directed by Samuel Beckett, Buster was admitted to the hospital with a chronic cough. The actor, who had famously smoked four to five packs of cigarettes per day, was diagnosed with lung cancer. The disease was too far gone for treatment, a fact that was kept from the actor, and he was eventually discharged from the hospital thinking he was getting over a bad case of bronchitis. I cannot believe they did this back then. They just didn't tell you what you had. Buster Keaton passed away less than a month after first going to the hospital on February 1st, 1966. Shortly after his death, The General finally turned a profit, 40 years after its initial release, and therefore finally triggering residuals for the actor, meaning he was finally able to make money off of his work on that film in addition to the salary he was paid. In 1976, the American Film Institute would name the film amongst the top 50 films ever made. In death... Buster, like so many artists that came before him, is more popular than he ever was in life. He was just too far ahead of his time for his pictures to be respected as they should have been. Thankfully, Buster Keaton is now rightfully lauded as one of the pioneers of cinema, a trailblazer of comedy and filmmaking whose audiences have finally caught up with. How did, how did a gag like this come into being? Well, those we sit around and talk about for quite a while before we start the picture and then take advantage of anything that happens to add to it this Cap is a yeah, this is a, a shock to anybody that's in the motion picture business today i mean you're veterans of the of the pictures of the last 25 years or so that didn't know the, the silent days a feature-length picture neither chaplin harold lloyd or myself ever had a script that sounds impossible to anybody today in the picture business. We never even thought of writing a script. We didn't need to. By the time we had talked and worked out what we thought was a picture, for instance, we always got a start. People always come up with a start. Says, That's funny. That's a good start. All right, we want to know the finish right then and there. See, There's nothing else to work on but the finish. And if we can't round it out, just something we like. We throw that one away and start on a new one. But when we get the start and the finish, we've got it because the finish, the middle, we can always take care of. That's easy.
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos of each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on board of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also still got the buy me a coffee. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, at long last, the life and career of the tramp, Charlie Chaplin. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 